Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slang and Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? Well, you know, as much as this is the the Bearcat Podcast, I think we're going back to our roots today uh, because of, of COVID canceling the Temple game this past weekend. But you know what? That doesn't stop me from saying this. It is still a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat fan. I love that you kept it at Cincinnati Bearcat fan because today, Hummer, we're not just going deep on football. We are going to get into basketball heavy. Like you said, football was canceled this week. That is a huge buzzkill. Uh, we were riding high on being placed seventh in the standings uh, for the college football playoff. Go ahead. I was going to say, before I forgot, you're talking about that. We're, we actually did have big news for football. What's the big news? Ohio State being canceled means that if any of the last two games of the season are canceled for them, they do not play enough games to be eligible for the Big Ten championship game. Super interesting. I'm actually glad you mentioned that because you're right. <laughs> At this point, Ohio State's best case is that they can finish 7-0 and this season. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it is a big development. Things are getting very tight for teams in the Big Ten, particularly Ohio State. They're probably the only one that matters after Northwestern showed their ass this weekend and uh, dropped the game to Michigan State, a Michigan State team that's just frankly not very good. And uh, yeah, I think the committee is going to be forced to make some extremely uncomfortable decisions, decisions that may ultimately prove to like tell on themselves, right? If you're putting in a 7-0 and Ohio State team over – and 11 and 0 Bearcats team with the record then and, and and resume that we have you know that's going to it's going to reveal really, really the the truth behind college football about what you know it's it's really about the big names um, and they're not the only ones you know there's there's plenty of other games being canceled across the board i hate that it's such a big factor in how the college football playoff is playing out but it's it's it's, it's a, something it's, that you have to take into account and, and not just to, to scream what, what our conference is going to be screaming in terms of the sales pitch here, but you do have to take into account that we've had at this point more chances to screw up than Ohio State has. You know, we, we, we frankly, we've done it and our schedule hasn't been bad. I'm sick and tired of the, the media landscape wanting to be out there saying how, you know, it's all about coming down and who do you play? Well, our schedule's not terrible. I'm sorry, at this point, and if you're looking at Ohio State, a 5-0 and Ohio State, who have they played? No one. And that's their best game is against a Penn State team who was ranked in the top 10 at the time, who hasn't won a game. They did win a game. They just beat right, Michigan. They, 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 finally, beat Michigan. they finally won a game. They beat Michigan <laughs> this past weekend, which, congratulations. And John Harbaugh, I'm sorry, uh, Jim Harbaugh, take a walk, buddy. This well, take a walk, enjoy your alma mater. You're not going to be there much longer. Well, if in the in the situation that we're looking at, Ohio State loses or has one of their next two games canceled, they can't make a Big Ten championship. I think that does impact their ability to make the playoffs, and it makes our kind of path maybe a little easier in the sense that we are now even bigger Brian Kelly fans. We want to get we want to get Clemson knocked out. Ohio State gets knocked out. That's two spots open up for the playoffs. Now we need a Florida to lose to an Alabama. Boom, we can slide in with the fourth, Texas A&M, 
all of a sudden we have a very diverse team in the playoffs of teams that just haven't, frankly, you know, we, it's not just the same players. <laughs> no, those are good points. We're definitely Brian Kelly and Notre Dame fans at this point. We are rooting for them to beat Clemson again in the ACC championship game. It's possible. As a matter of fact, it might even be, it's probably a coin flip game. So we're, we're certainly Notre Dame fans. Again, the same can be said for Alabama. We need them to run the table. We need them to beat Florida in that SEC championship game. The one question I have, though, is, you know, you're putting the stock in Ohio State, one more game canceled. They can't play in the Big Ten championship game. Wouldn't the Big Ten make sure that doesn't happen? You know, wouldn't they make sure that even if a game is canceled, they're rescheduling and reconfiguring their schedule so that Ohio State, if they are, in fact, undefeated at 6-0, and gets the games they need to be in that championship game? I, I just, the way things work in college football, there's not a doubt in my mind that Ohio State's going to get done everything they need to to make sure they are properly considered for the for the playoff. Well, let's let's remember what, what the Big Ten did in the first place when basically every other college football conference was saying, we're going to play, we're going to start on time, or we're going to attempt to start on time, we're going to reschedule all these games. They purposely and methodically said no and then reverse their decision to play to start play in the middle of October, the, end, the beginning of October, the middle, I think it was middle of October, right? October, October 20th, I think it was. Don't quote me on the date. But either way, they made that decision to really not put a whole lot of flexibility into the schedule. The fact that selection Sunday is is coming up, there's not a lot of, of wiggle room. And as we've heard before, just the the logistics of moving around these games is getting challenging. There's actually a possibility, and this is I'm not hearing this. This isn't news for me, or not not like a, a reveal. There's an opportunity. There's a possibility that we're not playing next week. You know, what I mean? there's a possibility. Well, we are not playing this week. We're there's not playing next week. We have a bye week, a, and I think we also were part of the reason that Temple got canceled in the COVID. So we well, have, I'm saying, we have there, to sit out. There's a possibility that we still may not have that under control in time. That maybe Tulsa gets canceled, or Tulsa has an outbreak of their own. So there's still an opportunity for us to not play some games as well. But, you know, I just think with Ohio State, with the Big Ten, I think they've taken a more cautious approach to this whole thing from the beginning that I don't think they're really going to be rushing to try to move that stuff around because it's going to be hard for them. It will be hard, but I think something that went under the radar, I think it was last week, a couple weeks ago, but the Big 12 commissioner, Bob Bowlesby, told Sirius XM that there have been discussions about moving back the playoff and the new year's six bowls due to COVID-19. I know that's just one commissioner coming out and speaking. And frankly, the big 12 has no business talking about the college football playoff at this point, but that is someone in a, in a very high position of power saying, yeah, we've had discussions about putting, pushing that back to me. That says if we need to, if COVID's having too big of an impact on the season, We'll push that back to make sure that the teams can get in the games they need to to be properly evaluated. So just keep that on your ra- radar. File that away. Nothing is in concrete at this point. The best thing the Bearcats can do in Bearcat fans, just worry about beating Tulsa in two weeks. Or I guess, yeah, it's about two weeks at this point. Uh, worry about winning the American Athletic Conference championship game and let the cards fall where they may. We just need to beat Tulsa as soundly and emphatically as we can two weeks in a row. So before we get going into our basketball talk, Hummer, that was a nice little pivot there into into football. Uh, A couple quick plugs. 
We did go in deep with Keith Jenkins of the Enquirer last week about the playoff ranking, about the football team in, at large, about some basketball talk. Go check that out. A lot of folks may have uh, may have put their podcasts on hiatus during the holiday break. Go ahead and download it. A lot of it still holds up today. Also, if you're enjoying listening to the podcast, we really appreciate all of your support throughout the over, I guess it's over 12 months at this point. It's been really fun to put these out to you, talk about the Bearcats, football and basketball. If you like the podcast, if you like what you're hearing, please head to iTunes, leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast with your friends. Uh, we really enjoy doing it, and those reviews certainly do help us. But now, Hummer, let's get into some basketball talk. Before we get into our burning questions, this was something we did last season. I thought I really enjoyed it. They ended up being very important questions for the team last year. We have three burning questions we really want to talk about with respect to the basketball team. Before we get into that, however, I want to ask you about your opinions of the Bearcats not playing until December 2nd. In conversations with the media, John Brandon basically said that rather than travel and be a part of an MTE, a multi-team event, uh, rather than schedule a last-minute game with an opponent who was also scrambling for, for games, he was going to leave the schedule at 25 games and start the season on December 2nd. This means that college basketball will have been happening for about seven days before the Bearcats are actually tipping off. You know, opponents like Xavier, upcoming opponents like Xavier are going to have, have played maybe, I think, four or five games potentially by the time that we actually face off. What are your thoughts on the approach by John Brandon? Well, just so you know, uh, even before this podcast being recorded on uh, November 29th, they have had four games, Xavier. Um, so they will have had five, definitely five games under their belt. Um, some of them are weird ones, though, like Oakland, 101 to 49. Not that I'm getting too much into their crap, but they barely squeaked by Toledo this past weekend. It is disconcerting. I think the biggest thing for me that's that's frustrating is kind of like the, I guess you could say that's them being transparent in their 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 logic behind it, but it, it's like okay, you're you're trying to sell people what's stay home, but you're gonna have to play these games eventually anyway. Is Limscombe doing this? Is Xavier doing? No, Xavier just went out and played five games before they came to you, you know. So they're obviously coming into contact with other people. So who are we really? What, what's the limiting factor here? I feel like the strategy this year should have been so let's let's try to throw the games out there because we know games are getting canceled. We we know that that's going to happen. Uh, I just think it's it's frustrating that it also took like took a long time for them to even get this out to us. You know, other teams have had their schedule up. We you know, what was it the pre NIT tournament, which was no longer called the pre NIT tournament, still went on, and the only thing that changed was Houston replaced us. Why? You know, we could have had a very good set of basketball games there and a really solid test to see who we had, what, what we have on our hands. And, you know, it was just like we said, here you go, Houston, have our spot. Yeah, I never really got a great explanation as to what happened in terms of Houston, quote unquote, taking our spot in that preseason NIT event, which I guess just basically became a, a standard MTE. I generally agree with you on the schedule approach of the Bearcats. I'm a bit, it's, it's two different, 
two different reactions. On one hand, I completely understand the sentiment of we're going to stay home, control as much as we possibly can, limit the travel, limit our overall exposure to the virus, and keep our team as healthy as possible. That on its face makes a lot of sense. And you can't really argue with it, right? It's probably the safest option for the players. And when you're considering player well-being, well, it's good to see that that's what your administration is valuing and, and putting its focus on. However, from, from the standpoint of we are having a college basketball season and other teams are starting to compete, I do think that it's a bit, it's missing the mark in the sense that, like you said, Lipscomb, Xavier, uh, Furham, they're all playing games at this point. Like they aren't themselves, you know, hunkering down and stopping themselves from, from potential exposure. And what that means is games against Xavier, games against Lipscomb have just as much a likelihood of being canceled. And if that's the case, our starting point of 25 games starts whittling down faster than those teams who had 27 games on the schedule. And I think we're just, because of the unique circumstances of COVID, it feels like it was a better idea to have as many games as possible on the schedule to give yourself as much of a buffer as possible to having games canceled because of, because of virus infections. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm torn over the whole thing. I'm certainly disappointed that we didn't get to see the Bearcats this week with the rest of college basketball. Again, I'm not going to beat the administration up over, over this too much because I do think that the, the heart is in the right place and the mind is in the right place from a health and safety standpoint. I just think that it's not doing or accomplishing as much as they want because they are subject to the health and well-being of these other universities universities they want to play that are not taking the same precautions. If I'm taking a look at the schedule and I'm, I'm starting to see what they did as we're talking this through, Limscombe home, Xavier home, Furman home, you start with Tennessee on the road. That gets us immediately into conference play. If the goal is to remain healthy for this, I think the – maybe the potential issue is what is the margin of error that we have this year in terms of our, our schedule with losses? What, what is the, you know, if we compare it to last year, for instance, we knew at certain points at the end of the game, we're really watching these, these net ratings and, and all this, all these different rankings that are coming out. And we're saying, okay, we cannot afford to lose to South Florida. Now, you know, we got seven of these eight games left and, and we can't afford to lose to, to East Carolina now how much more important did it just become getting a good seed in our tournament, winning the conference tournament for the Bearcats to make the, to make the NCAA tournament because we don't have that backlog of, of non-conference games to play. Uh, it's a great, a great point. I think that the non-conference schedule this season, unfortunately is more important than it was in the past. You know, the Bearcats just last season went seven and five in non-conference play, which is pretty, pretty poor. And when you consider some of the losses that we actually took, which included the likes of Bowling Green and included Colgate, you know, it was, it was a pretty piss poor showing in the non-conference. We were able to make up for that with stellar conference play. The same is the same can likely be said this season. Uh, you can likely make up for a bad non-conference schedule or, or bad performance in the non-conference. However, there's half the games there were last season. So you, in terms of your measuring stick across the country with other conferences, there's just less opportunities to do that. So it feels, my gut reaction says there's more importance on doing well in this non-conference slate. 
And when you look at it, it's a tough, tough, tough non-conference schedule. Uh, when you when you consider the fact that Xavier's Xavier's playing well so far, if you listen to Seth Davis, uh, he takes Xavier's early season results as uh, the equivalent of being a quote unquote Final Four team. You know they they beat Bradley fifty one fifty, they beat Toledo seventy six seventy three, Final Four. Uh, here they come. Regardless, from a national standpoint, they are well respected. They are a good team, and that is an opportunity for a big win for the Bearcats. Additionally. Uh, they're going on the road then to SEC games, Tennessee, who's a top 15 team. Now, right now, Tennessee is paused uh, due to COVID. Whether our game happens is still TBD. It seems like our date with them, which I think is December 12th, it seems like it's right outside the window of them clearing their two weeks and being back on track to playing some basketball. But again, two weeks in COVID time is a lifetime. We don't know what will happen, but if that game happens, huge opportunity for the Bearcats to send a message. And then they also go on the road uh, to take on Georgia on the 19th of December. So very, uh, I don't know. What's your reaction to, to the non-conference? Do you see it as important? Is it less important? Does any, I guess, are you asking, do do the Bearcats have to really bank on conference play more? So I'm, I'm a little unclear. I feel like with the, we only have five out of conference games. Last year, will we go seven and five during non-conference play? It put us in a tough position right off the bat to to perform in conference play. Like we knew that that's what we had to do. So I'm curious with only five games, if we go three and two, let's say we drop Tennessee and we drop Georgia. Now, is that going to be so detrimental because we don't have enough tier one or tier two or tier three schools or teams that we're playing in the net rankings? Because I'm looking at our conference and basically, in I, I have zero faith that Wichita State's going to be able to get anything out of the, out of their their players, considering the fact that they barely I don't even know if they have a head coach yet. Um, it, but that's beside the point. That's Wichita State, Florida State, UCF, Temple, East Carolina, and Tulane. I'm not really putting a lot of stock into the bottom of the conference this year. Um, I, I think even I mean, there's going to be some crazy results because of, of COVID and everything going on. So, I mean, we can take that into account, but it's really top heavy this year with Tulsa, Cincinnati, SMU, Memphis, and Houston. Uh, you know, wow. And- I think yeah, I, I, I was, I was, I was overstating the number of non-conference games. It's five, not six. Uh, good job at math there, Zach. Um, I think in some ways, because we have so few games in the non-conference, you're actually pulling for your conference more in their games. In the past, Houston, Texas Tech, you know, do I want to see Houston represent the American Athletic Conference? Well, sure. Do I care that much? Not necessarily. I think this season I'm pretty hyped to see that Houston pulled off that upset or pulled off that victory over Texas Tech and represented the American Athletic Conference well. Uh, it's, it's the same reason I'm disappointed to see Memphis drop games by 11 to VCU, um, and they also dropped a game to Western Kentucky. You know, Memphis is one of the bigger names in our conference, and those are two pretty poor losses in their non-conference schedule that ultimately won't reflect well on the conference. And come time for the selection committee in March or, you know, when they're doing their thing, there's going to be some conference bias that comes into play and probably more so than it has in the past because most teams are just measuring themselves for the in large part against their own conference rivals. So. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of pressure, I think, 
over these first five games, these first five non-conference games, I'm actually convincing myself and talking into it that it's, they're not as important, you know, three and two, two and three. I don't think they're the make or break. I think there's tremendous importance on the conference schedule and the Bearcats are going to have to perform at a very high level in conference play to be one of those top two to three teams to really have a legitimate shot at the tournament. Uh, and that's where I think it gets even scary because this could be a year because this is going to be a conference beating up on itself. I think, you know, this is also a year where we're actually probably going to look to say we want Houston to not be upset by Temple at all. We don't want to see Memphis losing to the likes of Temple. Uh, we want to see the top, you know, we only want to see the beating up of the top of the conference coming from the top of the conference. You know, we only want to see Memphis losing to Houston an SMU or Tulsa you know, we don't want to keep, we don't want to see any of these huge upsets in the conference. We need to keep as many of these teams high as possible. But at the same time, I think Cincinnati realistically taking a look at it needs not only needs to perform well, but we need to finish in the one or two spot in the conference. I don't think there's going to, like you said, it's going to be a tough year this year for mid majors. I, I just have that, that, that gut feeling that that's, that's the type of year it's going to be. And that one or two is going to be like bare minimum, like, there may only be one one team from our conference getting in a tournament. That is a possibility. It could be Houston. It just depends on how the season shakes out. But I don't. This isn't going to be a year where four teams from the from the conference are getting in. Yeah, I would take the under. If you if you set the over under at three and a half, I think I'm going under in terms of how many teams from the American make the make the make the tournament this season. This season, early on, the results have been pretty bad. I'm just running through the games here of non-conference for the American, yeah. and there haven't been many great results for our conference so far. Houston is really the the shining beacon there, and that's no surprise. I would say they're easily the clear-cut favorite to win the conference this season, and I put the Bearcats right behind them, especially when you look at the start Memphis is off to. Memphis never, never really scared me. Uh, Houston, I definitely see them as a very formidable rival in our in our league. They're very hungry. They're biting at the chomp. They're biting at the chomp to get back to Cincinnati, but uh, chomping at the bit, chomping at the bit. We'll see what happens. It's, it's almost, it's like, it's, it's like a, a cloudiness an air of uncertainty, but at the same time, it's exciting knowing that conference play, every game's going to matter even more. So. Um, yes, absolutely. It's kind of, it, it should make those games as intense as ever. The sad part, no fans in the stands to actually enhance that intensity and to make it that much more rowdy. But again, I'll, I'll take what I can get at this point. Just let me see some UC hoops. I'm desperate. I'm desperate. All right, Hummer, that is a good point to transition into this season's three burning questions for the Cincinnati Bearcats basketball team. Let's do it. Let's get into our first question here. I think it's a good one to start with because it'll let us speak about the team in more broad strokes. But again, we can we can nail this down to very specific answers uh, for the people here. First question. Who are the odd men out on the Bearcats? The reason I am asking that question is because in a recent article uh, written by Justin Williams on The Athletic, John Brannon did reference the fact that he really likes leaning on a nine man rotation. We've talked about this team at length in the off season. We've hashed out who the players are on the team. We even did a couple episodes about returning players and about new players. I thought to kick off this conversation about who the odd men out will be this season. 
let's go through what we see as the depth chart. I'm going to list out the nine players that I'm extremely confident in from a role standpoint, where you see them getting consistent minutes. We know, we, we know who the likely starters are. And even from a backup standpoint, based on early indications from uh, John Brandon and talking to the press, early indications from what we've been hearing about practice from the, from the folks we talked to, we kind of have a sense of these guys being the, the key contributors for this season. So and, point- and, and, and before you get into that, just for the people counting at home, keep in mind, there's 12 players that we've identified that we, we think are going to see minutes throughout the season. So we're not talking about, you know, the walk-ons we're, we're, we're not talking about uh, specifically uh, Victor uh, lock in because we think he's going to be redshirted. So we're going to, we're going to start with the starting five, but then, so if you're counting at home, you know how many players we have left to go through. Right. We should have three remaining at the end to discuss who I think by process of elimination should essentially be Cincy Slangen's odd men out. And it's not meant as a term of, of deriding. Like we're not trying to criticize you by, by identifying you here, but I'm saying based on the roles I see for this team and the number of minutes John Brandon has available to play players, it seems like these are the three we expect might have the most difficulty seeing consistent minutes game to game. So a point guard, Penciled in the starter of David DeJulius, Justin Williams agrees. At backup, we're penciling in Mike Saunders Jr. If you hear John Brandon or anybody else talk about him, he's he's unbelievably impressive so far. Um, Victor accidentally posted assist to turnover ratios recently on his Instagram page. I got a kick out of that. Uh, but you can see even from that, Mike Saunders already has assist to turnover ratios comparable to that of David DeJulius. So far, based on this photo, it showed it showed him with 40 assists to 24 turnovers. Uh, if you wanted to compare that to DeJulius, he has 48 assists, 23 turnovers. Um, another, this is how is, desperate we are for Bearcat information. Desperate is that we're pulling, we're pulling off leaked photos off Instagram. We're going off of, of uh, in-game scrimmage box scores posted by Lisa Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do want to, uh, I want to thank Antonio for sending those over to us. He, uh, he kind of gave us a tip on those being posted. Also, we'll move on to, to the two guard. Uh, we're penciling in Micah Adams Woods as our starter. We've been saying that for weeks. Justin Williams also agreed with that in his article that moves Zach Harvey as sort of the backup two guard. We expect him to get big minutes for the Bearcats this season. If he doesn't, that's a concern. Uh, so again, Mike at Micah Adams Woods is penciled in as our starting two guard. Small forward, this is an obvious, obvious choice. Keith Williams, you're going to see him probably as the lone guy in the team where you can really be confident he's going to see about 30 minutes a game. Power forward. We know Rapalis Ivanowskis wants and sees himself as a power forward. We are penciling him, him in as, as our starting four, having his backup as Tari Eason. And that's because Tari is the cream of the crop when it comes to this freshman class. That's not to say that Gabe Mason or Micah or even Victor can't be outstanding Bearcats long-term, but Tari is coming in with a pedigree. He was the highest ranked player in this class from a freshman standpoint and all signs point to him being an extremely productive freshman. Who's going to be difficult to keep off the court. Rapalis himself was raving about the fact that Tari's skill set actually includes a lot of guard skills. Highly impressive freshman, super excited to see him. And then finally, center, we're penciling in 
Chris Vote is the starter. I think that's a no-brainer. He started last season. I actually was beating the drum of starting his backup, Mamadou Diar, this offseason. But I've actually come around to the fact that given Chris Vote's unique presence in the post, I think that can be something special for the Bearcats. We'll get into that later. Hummer, that leaves us with three odd men out. Jeremiah Davenport, Gabe Madsen, and Mason Madsen. Initial thoughts. Do you agree that these are the three that you would put as your quote odd men out? <laughs> it's hard to disagree when we, when we kind of came up through the list list together here, but no, I, I don't disagree with you because, you know, Gabe and Mason uh, from what we've been hearing, they're great players and they're going to provide a, gr- a great value long-term. And it's not to say that they're, they're not going to see the court at all this year. Uh, it's just, I think their roles are going to be incredibly limited. We're going to maybe also, you know, I don't, we don't want anybody to be injured, but I think as it's, it all depends on what the needs of the team that, that come up for some of these players to see minutes. Uh, Jeremiah Davenport, we, we saw a couple flashes from him last year, but just the, the transfers that we brought in and the raw talent, um, you know, the only thing I could see maybe uh, Jeremiah Davenport slipping into there uh, would be for uh, the, you know, kind of like a, a guard, maybe a guard situation. Uh, bringing him in because Saunders is a freshman. So, you know, once we get into these games and we see how he's handling the pressure, uh, is he making mistakes? Is he turning the ball over? Is he, is he doing this, not doing that? Maybe Jeremiah Davenport's able to, to, to slip in and, and gain some minutes that way. And it maybe it becomes Saunders jr. Who's odd man out. So I think there's, that's why it's a burning question though, uh, because we just don't really know until we start seeing some of these games get played what these rotations are going to look like. These are our best guesses. I think you said it, the starting lineup is, is pretty solid in my opinion. I do not think Saunders Jr. will be starting over to Julius. I, I don't I don't think that's, that, that's happening. Um, it's weird though, if you look at that rotation though, it, it means that there's always like, I guess there's always one of those people that has to be on the court. Um, there is no backup for Keith Williams. Well, that's, I think it's going to be a guard heavy lineup. I mean, even Keith Williams himself classifying him as a small forward is, is a little bit off because he's more of a two guard, right? He's a six right. wing. They're all, they're all wings and they're all fairly interchangeable. Did Julius and Micah have the least size, right? They're probably both standing at about six feet. Mike is actually a little bit less than that five eleven or so, but Harvey, Micah, and Keith, they're all super rangy. We know we know all about Micah Adams-Woods wingspan. So in terms of defending some bigger guards or, or small forwards, I don't really have too many concerns about that. I think they're all athletic enough and savvy enough to get the job done. I was going through and looking at the, the minutes distribution of last year's team. And really, if you look at it, John Brandon basically had a nine-man rotation. Uh, Jaron Cumberland led the way at about 32 minutes a game. After that, you had Keith Williams, Trey Scott, Chris Vogt, Javen, Micah Adams-Woods, uh, Sorola, Mamadou, Chris McNeil. You know, so the guys like Jeremiah Davenport, freshman, Zach Harvey, freshman, uh, those guys had difficulty seeing consistent minutes from game to game. That's not to say that they wouldn't have a game or two uh, here or there where they had a big impact. We all remember Jeremiah Davenport's fantastic cameo against Memphis last season at home. So again, Jeremiah, Gabe, and Mason, I see them having their moments this season, but in terms of being in that consistent rotation 
where you can really expect them to see maybe 10 plus minutes a game. I don't know that any, I'd expect that from any of them this season. I think it's probably going to be most disappointing from Jeremiah's standpoint, uh, given his, his role with the team last season, he did struggle with, you know, knee surgeries last year. And again, this is us speculating. We could be off. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm proven wrong. And Jeremiah is actually, actually going to be a much bigger part of the team. If he is, who's, who's not, who's, who's sacrificing their minutes because one of Gabe, Gabe Mason or Jeremiah are getting more playing time than we expected. Um, I mean, I think the, I don't want to say it's fairly obvious there, but I think if Jeremiah, Jeremiah Davenport's taking up a greater role, uh, you know, getting into that, I would say that well, I guess he would say, I think he's still going to be in a limited role. He's going to be in that 12, 16% of possessions. If, if he's even utilized, uh, I think he, it's Mike Saunders who, who, who takes that odd man out. Uh, I think it's just, it's the freshman, it's the freshman aspect, just everything we're hearing about Harvey going at it, uh, being incredibly involved, just uh, being, what's the right word, motivated, if you would, um, in practice and, and really taking in him and Keith Williams, battling it out. Um, I just see it being more of a freshman. And as, as we know, he's not going to be playing. He, it's not going to be Mamadou or vote in this situation. We don't have anybody really to say that's going to be able to replace them. It's not going to be rap. I do not think it's going to be Tari. Um, so I really think that that final spot is going to come down to Saunders. Saunders Jr. Would, would be that odd man out of Jeremiah Davenport uh, is in fact going to have a larger role in the team. Okay. I like that call. Um, I actually would go with, if we're making a wild prediction to say, let's say Jeremiah Davenport's having a bigger role. I'd probably say Zach Harvey's the one I have the most questions about. And that's just based on kind of the, the, the way his freshman season went, the way that he was so enigmatic in terms of predicting what you're getting from him defensively and, and his shot making. He's also extremely tantalizing from a talent standpoint. So he's, I have big, big expectations. I'm betting on him having a big role with the team, 20 plus minutes per game. Uh, but again, if I'm kind of making that in that prediction game of who's most likely to fall out of the penciled in rotation, I'd say Harvey's certainly a candidate. I want to say based on the shot making ability of Mason Madsen and even Gabe, that's where it's, it's a total wild card, right? Like when you're so good at shooting, like the both of them are that that can get you on the court, especially for spot possessions down the stretch in a game where you need a bucket. Um, honestly, it's a luxury. I think the team is very deep. I think it can be difficult for freshmen to get minutes. And I think Tari and Mike so far, based on what we're hearing, are those special type of freshmen who are ready to contribute almost from the jump. Yeah, let's let's just compare it again to last year real quick. Just like a, a thought a thought a thought experiment, if we would. If we look at the the bottom three from last year's team that that were outside the the, the top nine, Sorolla, Davenport, and more. We both we all know what happened that Jeremiah Davenport was basically the only player that was basically called a bench warmer at, by the end of the season, you know, we had transfer and then we had Dre Sorolla uh, leave us uh, for the wine filled pastures of Spain. Um, <laughs> but like, so at this point we're, we're in a team where when we're talking about these guys with limited roles and quote unquote bench warmers, they're guys that, I don't actually think we're really going to have a quote unquote bench warmer. I think we're going to just have guys that all have very limited roles down, down in that bottom thing. And we're going to have nine players who are going to see, you know, 30% of the minutes or more. 
and the rest of these guys are going to come in like you said spot if we what what are you what are you good for what are you good for <laughs> absolutely everything yeah <laughs> uh, you know they're going to come in when we need them and they're going to have they, they just they're going to have a specific use that they're being used for um and there's nothing wrong with that. There's just, it's, it's part of the beauty of college basketball that these guys are going to develop throughout their careers and they're going to take on greater roles. I like how you phrase that key contributors. We've made our selections for who our nine key contributors are. We'll see how that plays out. Let's get to our next burning question. You came up with this one. I want to, I want to give you credit because I think we've got a good conversation ahead. And the question you posed was, can Chris Vote be the focal point of a high-level college basketball team? I'll let you kick this off. So this kind of came to me because we were, we were listening to John Brandon or reading John Brandon, and, and I'm going to paraphrase the quote unless you have it readily available. But it basically went along the lines of, in the last two minutes of a game, you're probably going to see Chris Vote or Keith Williams and Chris Vote get either the majority of the touches or many touches. Um, to me, that statement says that you're going to see an offense that looks a lot like the beginning of last year's offense where Chris vote was a focal point and we were trying to pass the ball and, 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 th- and route it through him. So it wasn't just one player on the perimeter. And I think we switched away from that offense because Chris vote, we, they found out early how to stop it. Um, they, they found out that if we double teamed Chris vote, if he, he would put the ball on the floor, make mistakes, turn over, and, and eventually that, that kind of fell apart. So the way I'm thinking about it is, is, is Chris Vote has his game developed enough this offseason that when the ball is put in his hands, he has more than one option, which is put the ball in the put the ball in the rim, put the ball in the hoop. Is it I can turn is he gonna be able to turn around and spot the open man when the double team comes? Yeah, I think I was not initially on board for this being one of the three burning questions when we talk about burning questions, it's really like what is going to be key for the Bearcats? Like what do we really need to keep our, our eyes on this season? And initially I thought, well, Chris votes success as this season is not all that required for the Bearcats to have a great year. And I, I attribute that largely to the depth of the front court. All of a sudden we have Rappelis Ivanowskis who fancies himself a power forward, but frankly, he could slide over as a center too, given his size and skill set. But then you also have Mamadou, who we saw thrive late last season in his role, where he can spread the court, shoot the three, but also be incredibly effective defensively. And then you have this, this you know, uh, diaper dandy, as Dick Vitale says, Tari Eason coming in with all the expectations in the world. So factoring in that depth, my initial reaction was, whether or not Chris Vogt can be a focal point, I don't care because I don't think it's all that important for the Bearcats. However, we've now heard two different very interesting comments from Brandon about Chris Vogt coming into the season. To quote specifically what you alluded to previously, John Brandon said in uh, the re- most recent article Justin Williams posted on The Athletic, right now, if we were playing tonight and it was under two minutes to go in the game, I think Keith Williams and Chris Vogt would get a lot of touches. Before that, he also alluded to the fact that Chris Vogt's passing has developed tremendously since last season. And then, honestly, if you want to add a third comment, which I just thought about now, it's the fact that Chris Vogt finished the season with a shoulder injury last year, which they are saying greatly hampered his ability to be productive on the court. The point of that is, 
that Chris Vogt is being talked about in a way by John Brandon as if he is incredibly important to the success this season. It sounds like John Brandon has very high hopes for him as to being a dominant force inside, but also, you know, making defenses collapse and being able to punish them by passing out to perimeter shooters and cutters. Here's the thing, Hubbard. Let me just finish up real quick. I'll put a bow on it. I've become more tantalized with the idea of Chris Vogt being more dominant this season based on the roster around him. The more you think about it, the more you look at it, you have DeJulius, Saunders, Adams Woods, Harvey, Keith, Ivanowskis, Tari, and Mamadou. Every single one of those players can stretch it and and shoot it from three. And I know it's an intra-squad scrimmage. I know that we shouldn't put too much stock into those. But Tari Eason, I think, went 4-4 in the first half from three. Uh, Mamadou, we know how he can shoot it. Harvey, Adams Woods. If if they have the type of shooting that we think they do, Chris Vogt is going to be able to eat this season. And I think I was underselling how important and big, no pun intended, that could be for the Bearcats. And you're actually alluding to what I was going to say there. It's basically John Brandon is going to do, and I'm, I'm stealing this from, from a friend of yours, uh, Corey Sim. But like when you look at what coaches do, they're going out there to put the best, the, the offense or the defense or the strategy that they think they can win with, or with the, in the, with the best percentage or odds of winning. And for John Brandon, we know that strategy at the beginning of the year was running the offense through some sort of version of Chris vote being in the middle and making decisions. Uh, that's what he showed us. And I think that's what we're going to get a lot of this season. And we have the pieces this year to make it successful where last year he had Mick Cronin's old team, half of it, half the players on that team or more were, were, you know, from a defensive minded, let's not shoot the ball mindset. And so he had to pivot this year. I don't think he's going to have to pivot. I think he's going to have the team start basically to see the type of player that he team that he wants. Cause it also seemed last year. We also saw that Keith Williams was, more than happy to play that type of that type of ball where we're, we're passing it around a lot. We don't actually have one person. Um, so I'm really excited to see it. I definitely think Chris Boat, uh, in terms of does he have to take, I think he has to take a leap though. I think that if Brandon has to be 100% right in saying that his passing has increased leaps and bounds. Agreed. I think the passing is critical. He doesn't have to be a 20-point-per-game scorer. I think the beauty of this team is the depth. We're going to sound like a broken record when we talk about it, but there's a lot of guys who can get a bucket. Uh, There's a lot of guys who can handle the ball, penetrate, create for others. If Chris Vogt can be a plus, whether or not he's scoring or passing offensively, I think that turns turns out huge for the Bearcats. I think the, the signs are pointing to him being extremely successful offensively. The way Brandon is talking about him in the media hints to me that he's been very effective so far in practices and and scrimmages. The one kind of sub question I have for this, for this point about Chris Vogt being being a focal point is defensively. Right now we've penciled in a starting lineup in the front court of Rapolis and Vogt. Neither one of them are the most fleet of foot. And honestly, when you look at the rest of our team, it's so rangy. You know, you hear Brandon raving about the fact that Mamadou has just been dynamite defensively in practices, that he's easily the best defender of ball screens on the team. You're hearing about Tari developing that aspect of his game. I mean, 
honestly, Tari projects out as the best defensive player on this Bearcats roster when you factor in his athleticism, his size, his wingspan, his his basketball IQ. He's going to be dyna- he's going to also be just an exceptional defensive player. But you're also putting maybe your two weakest defenders on the team, potentially, in Chris Vote and Rapalus Ivanowskis. You're starting them in your front court, and that could be that could open up opportunities for teams to punish us by pulling them out to the perimeter, by putting them in pick and rolls. That's where I've got some major questions. That's where there might be some reconfiguring of the starting lineup potentially. Uh, but John Brandon has, has the tools at his disposal to be effective in that way. Like you can, you can easily pair Chris vote and Mamadou Diara. You can easily pair Rapalis and Mamadou. You can easily pair Tari and Chris vote. That's where the flexibility is. I actually don't know if this, the projected starting bigs are the best combination. Well, this is, and before we get into the last burning question, I was, I just thought just popped in my mind. We've talked about this in the past that when you're, there's like a point in time in college basketball for, for development where you see these big leaps in talent, big, big leaps in production. And it, the, the thought came across my mind. This just sounds so tantalizing if it happens. What if Mamadou takes that gigantic sophomore leap this year into his junior year? and just destroys it like what if we is that possible what if mamadou turns into uh, ob toppin (laughs) (laughs) not that not that that you know not that drastic but you know what i mean like how much how much improvement can because there was a big improvement just in the middle of last season from the first half to the second half in his play first half of the season he was running all over the court looked lost at times by the end of the game in temple he's dropping three threes shooting 180 percent well, how hard will it be for Brandon to keep him off the court if Mamadou is bringing you the best defensive play of any big on the team and he mm-hmm. pairs it with 40% three-point shooting? If Mamadou is bringing that to the table, how is he not getting 20 to 25 minutes a game? Right? And that's and that's kind of what I'm what I'm asking is 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 this year that we see that from Mamadou? Maybe this is the the, the three and a half burning question, <laughs> but is this a year that we see Mamadou take a leap that is big? And like I said, I'm not talking about Obi, but I'm just talking about just a big leap in terms of player development that he just commands more minutes. He just commands more respect on the court. I, I think it's. I think it is a great question, and I think we saw we saw it toward the tail end of last season. We saw it with the, the shooting. We saw it with the defense. If that comes in more seamless from the get-go, it'll be very interesting to see how John Brandon juggles that lineup. Yeah, I, I guess, well, and I, I don't know, are we leading into the, the third question here? It's kind of going back to when you look at Keith Williams and his development where, you know, he's he was great last year, right? But I, I guess I actually have to go back and see what he did uh, in 2019 just to see, was it a big leap from his, from his numbers in 2019 or was he just a kind of about the same player? Did, did he just take that leap from his sophomore to his junior year as what I'm kind of looking for here? I'd almost say okay, maybe Trey Scott took that leap last year in a sense. I think Trey took a little bit of a, a leap in, in his play in terms of defensively uh, being the leading rebounder in a team that didn't rebound. Uh, Keith went up a level. Let me. Let, I'll be clear. Like I've got the stats pulled up here. Keith went okay. up a level last season, especially. Like, let's look beyond the. So stats is it the here. level? Is it the level? What I'm looking at though, like it was a it was a big leap. 
it was a it was a pretty significant lead, leap. He went from about Perfect. ten points a game to nearly thirteen points a game. His assists went up, his rebounds went up, his minutes went up, his shooting percentage went up, percentages went up. One, a big one there. Free throw went from seventy point seventy point seven percent to seventy nine point two percent. Three point shooting went from twenty seven point six to thirty four point two. Those percentages are an indicator of tremendous growth growth within his game. Um, that does take us into our third question. And that third question, the third burning question of the 2020 basketball season is how high does Keith Williams senior season leap have to be? The way we're asking this question is really in comparison to a theme we've talked about in the past, which is the mystic senior season leap that we've seen in Bearcats of past. Uh, Trey Scott, Sean Kilpatrick, uh, obviously Kenyon Martin, Steve Logan. I mean, there's been, numerous Bearcats throughout history who stay four years and come in their senior season and just leave a dominant lasting impact. We actually talked about Jaron Cumberland, the fact that his senior season was a bit of an aberration and that his best season was not his senior season. It was his junior season. And that's not necessarily the norm for Bearcat greats. Um, The way we're asking the question is how high does the leap actually have to be? Does Keith Williams have to have a leap similar to that of Steve Logan or Kenny Martin. And I'm not saying he has to be those types of players, but does it have to just be this incredible jump where he goes from, Hey, I'm a fringe draft outside the second round prospect who maybe a team takes a flyer on me with a G league contract to, Whoa, look at this guy's shooting percentages. Look at his you know playmaking ability with the ball. We need to think about this guy in the second round now, or we need to think about him as a late first. Does he, do you see Keith Williams needing to take that type of leap his senior season for our, you know, wildest dreams of this Bearcat team, this Bearcat team to come true. You know, originally I thought the answer to that was no, but now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I think the answer actually is yes. We do need to see some sort of senior season out of Keith Williams. My thought process goes is yes. While we are very deep, we are very inexperienced in the sense that we only have two seniors. We only have two juniors. The rest of the team is freshman and sophomore. Uh, you know, we're going to need that that kind of play out of him. Now, it's not going to be – I don't even think he needs to be Jaron Cumber, Cumberland-esque in terms of, like, you know, that that demanding of the ball, you know, uh, 77 – or what, what was his – I'm trying to look up his usage percentage. Uh, you know, I basically, him and Keith Williams on a, on a usage – or him and Jaron last year were both equal in terms of usage. Uh, minutes were about equal. So you, you just really want to see him keep increasing the, what he's doing. You're probably going to want to see more assist out of him this year. You know, that that's probably a stat we're going to look at. We're probably going to want to see a, a higher shooting percentage. Um, but I definitely think you're going to have, we're going to have to see some, also some leader, maybe some more leadership um, qualities coming out of him at, at, that maybe he hasn't been accustomed to because for the most of his career here, he's, he hasn't been the number one guy. Jaron Cumberland has been, you know, big man on campus you know, for, for essentially three se- was for three seasons. And now Keith Williams needs to come in and, and be that big man on campus and be a leader and a role model for the team. So I do think there is a little bit more on his shoulders this year that he needs to, st- to rise to the occasion to use some more sports puns here. Um, well, I and- think the Keith, I, I think the Keith Williams leap, it does need to be significant for us to kind of reach our maximum potential. 
it's just that we need to think about it in in a different context than we did Jaron Cumberland, Kilpatrick. Yeah, it, it it doesn't it, need to be a Kenyon Martin type of leap. It doesn't need to, or or even Kilpatrick, where you did go to being like it just. No, because it's not actually based in scoring. I think that's the key. I don't need I to see Keith missing, Williams. Yeah. I don't think we need to see Keith Williams come in and be like an 18-point-per-game scorer. That's actually not the leap that's needed on this team. And it goes back to, again, depth of scoring, depth of options. Keith Williams, the leap for him is I'm going to come in and be the baddest mother effer on this team. I'm going to bring it 40 minutes a game. I'm going to be the number one defensive player on this team where another player's best offensive option, I'm shutting them down the entire game. I'm not getting in foul trouble. I'm going to be in them consistently and constantly every minute of that game. Because if Keith Williams has had a weakness, even last season, and I would say he improved upon it, but he does have a tendency of floating in and out of games. He has a tendency of not necessarily being laser focused every minute of every game. And I know nobody is, but they, the best players, the most impactful players are absolutely dialed in for a large majority of that game. And they just bring an incredible intensity to the game. That's where Keith Williams can really distinguish himself in terms of Bearcat lore is to become an exceptional defensive player. Like we've always expected is to be, you know, exceptional at finishing at the rim, continue to knock down shots, continue to develop your offensive game, but I think you hit the nail on the head. Hey, come in your season, your senior season and be more of a creator. Be someone who we can trust with the ball in your hands, not just as a scorer, but as creating a shot for someone else because that's never been a forte, but that's the kind of thing he can do to really stand out and make his senior season special. Yeah, and I feel like Mamadou's becoming my new my new Trace Scott here. Uh, <laughs> We're talking about like just how, you know, Keith Williams can grow there. And I think you hit it there too. It was, you know, bringing it every game, basically being, being a leader on the court. And that's where Mamadou excelled last year in a sense of like, he came onto the court, he brought an energy with him. And that's something I want to see Mamadou definitely keep bringing. I don't want to see a regression on that from Mamadou. I want to see him bring it even harder than he did last year. Um, but I, Man, Wednesday's almost here. It is. I know. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Uh, this team is is one of the more fun teams to think about and talk about. It's unfortunate that we we didn't we're not going to get as many games to watch them. You know, I hope we get as many as possible. I hope that we have as few cancellations as possible. Uh, but it's just an exciting team with new faces and and unique talents. And the offensive firepower is different than we've seen in Bearcats teams of past. Um, with Mick Cronin teams the past, his last few seasons, there weren't very many creators. There weren't very many guys. You could just give the ball and try and get a bucket. Honestly, by my count, like did Julius Adam, uh, let's say did Julius Keith Williams, Rapolis vote. All of those guys are all of those are guys. You could just say, give them the ball and they'll get a bucket. And I didn't even include Micah Adams woods or Zach Harvey in that conversation. So just a lot of a lot of firepower, a lot of athleticism, a lot of potential. Can the Bearcats reach their potential this season? What is their potential? As far as I'm concerned, it's a team that can and should compete for the American Athletic Conference. I would say they are underdogs to Houston, but in my mind, there is no reason this team should not be top two in the conference, uh, barring health. 
barring games getting played. But when I look at the roster, the talent, the skill sets, this is a team that should compete for the conference championship and, and really finish top two. Um, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt finish in top three. And I think we have a real shot at the, the big tournament. Now this one's hard. Cause I know we don't, we don't really do anything about it. And it's, this one's just a tough year to do it. Are we trying to predict what our final record is going to be? I think we were pretty close to it last year. We, um, we, over, we, we were definitely too bullish. And, and that's kind of the thing I'm worried about is that maybe I'm just like the, the op, hopeless optimist for Bearcats and I'm always going to have two to three extra wins on there, but Hey, I'm not going to apologize for it. Well, I still think winning the conference, let's, let's just assume there's no, you know, COVIDness coming out. It took, we had to lose less than five times last year or, you know, five times five was the over under there. I'm actually would peg that probably to be about the same this year. Um, with the with the the quality of teams that we have at least going down through the fifth spot in the conference, um, you know, it starts to get a little shaky once we once we get down to uh, to Wichita State, uh, you know. So I, I think five losses is going to be the maximum to winning the conference. So I could see the Bearcats in between that. And this is where I'm again. I'm, if I'm too bullish, then you know, shame on me. I just think we have a really good team, uh, and I think we should be finishing in that one or two spot. So if it's two, I'm saying it's six losses on the conference schedule. And, you know, two losses, I think, on the non-conference schedule. I'm not going to say which ones those are, though. So you're going to finish with a record of 18 and 7? Mm-hmm. Or did you say six losses in conference? Uh, six, so I'm thinking eight losses. Eight, okay. So you're thinking 17 and 8 to finish the season. Yeah. Is that good enough to get in the tournament? I don't know. I think it's board. I, I think we're, border, we're borderline. That's why I said before, I don't think the AC is getting three teams in. I do think that winning the conference tournament is like your first surefire shot from this of getting in. If, if you're Cincinnati and you're not sharing a, t- a shot of the title with Houston, you're nervous about getting into the tournament because of how weak our overall schedule is going to be. Yeah. I think I'm going to go one game better. I'm going to take a record of 18 and seven as our final record, assuming that all games are played, which who knows if that's even possible. Later this week, we are going to drop a second episode. We recorded a super fun kind of throwback, nostalgic podcast episode with Corey Sims, former Cincinnati Bearcat basketball team manager. Yes, a team manager. I think he's going to be joining the podcast more regularly. We had some fun talking about the team. We focused on 2009. That'll be the tease. Fun episode. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening to the podcast. For now, cheers. Later.